everyone said entrepreneurship was easy. But honestly, let's be real about it. Hi, my name is Varun Valsara. And I'm Luke Nellicliffe. And we are the hosts of the Human Entrepreneur Podcast. This is the podcast that unmasks the human behind the entrepreneurs. We uncover the skills they have learned. Lessons they wish they knew earlier. And stories that will motivate, inspire, and sometimes shock you. Entrepreneurship just got real. Welcome to our show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Human Entrepreneur. I'm joined by my co-host today, Luke Nethercliffe. Hi Luke, how does it feel to be at week 10, term 2 of your final year? Yeah, it's kind of crazy, bro. Um, like this, this term is kind of shot by um, and now we're at the, the week where all the assessments are due. So it's a bit of fun, um, but I've got lots of presentations, uh, which is my favorite form of assessment. So um, yeah, I'm quite excited for that as well. How are you doing? Bro? Yeah, I mean, same year, presentations, essays due, all of that kind of stuff. And it just feels exciting to be at the end of this journey and looking forward to what's to come, you know, a post-graduation. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of big things uh, to come. And I mean, with the human entrepreneur, we're really excited when we've graduated, we can work on this full time and see really where human entrepreneur goes. Do you want to give any teasers to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, we've already given a lot of stuff here and there, but I think just to maybe formalize it, conversations are now going towards uh, how do you convert what we're doing into a larger scale? And I don't mean just in terms of the podcast, but you know, really looking and thinking through what the future really looks like in terms of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial skills, empowering the youth, empowering individuals to leverage the entrepreneurial thinking abilities for the future. And, uh, you know, through the research and, and, and through, you know, whatever stuff we're doing with our experiments, we're closely inching towards what is, you know, known as the ed tech industry, which is currently booming. And, you know, we're just trying to get our grips around it and try and understand and research what is really needed. So if you have any insights, if you're listening or you think someone has, we would love to talk to them. We would love to talk to you. If you have any suggestions for us, that would be amazing. I think one of the other things that I would really like to also maybe take away from this is, you know, I think we need to start documenting a lot more uh, in terms of just, you know, conversations and what we've been learning. I think it, it, it's good to look back, but it's also good to then you know, crowdsource that learning and learning publicly, I think does that maybe in the form of Twitter, maybe in the form of LinkedIn posts, or maybe a blog. But I think that's something that I'm probably looking forward to. Yeah, I think it definitely will give us a lot more time. And I think when you reflect back on it, you're probably a bit laughing at what you, what you're saying, conversations you're having, if you're like looking back from like two years ago, or something, because hopefully you would have changed and you really would have seen how those conversations then have helped you grow into the person you are today. So I think documenting is always great. And um, yeah, going into this episode now with David Smith, it's an excellent one for people who are interested in selling and sales, um, reaching the right customers. So I'm sure you will enjoy it. And we will catch you all soon. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Human Entrepreneur, the podcast dedicated to teaching the young people entrepreneurial skills. 
Today, Luke and myself are very excited to welcome David Smith on the podcast. David has 30 years of B2C and B2B sales and marketing experience. After working for Unilever and Footfall, David decided to set up his own marketing and business consultancy in 2008. During this time, David has helped many companies improve their go-to-market strategies and commercialize their technical products, including helping academics commercialize their research, being a driving force in setting up and running a number of startup and scale-up businesses across different market sectors, especially the tech space. Some of his work includes AI-based SaaS systems for predicting security queues at airports, a mechanism to reduce the false opening of automatic doors, and a foot mirror specifically designed to help people with diabetes see the bottom of their feet and hence reduce the risk of getting ulcers. Hello, David. Welcome to The Human Entrepreneur. Good morning. Welcome. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. On a beautiful, bright and sunny day. Awesome. So, David, our guests at The Human Entrepreneur always ask this one question and we're going to ask the same question to you. What is your elevator pitch? Right. That's always, that's always a good one. It usually depends on who I'm talking to or who I'm working with at the time. Essentially, I'm a technically backgrounded person who likes to work in commercial products to help them become commercialized, focusing on the benefits to the end user as opposed to the technical capabilities that went into it in the first place. Nice. David, what makes you a human entrepreneur? I think I've managed to evolve myself over time. I, I started my career very much wanting to move into corporate life and be this sort of person who works through a standard career path, it works myself through, through management to a senior position in a big company, and then get a house, get a mortgage, and just get settled down and look forward to a pension at some point. And it struck me quite early in my career, within a few years into that, that really wasn't what I was all about. I liked the corporate life. It was a very good learning space. It was, you met some very, very good, very talented people. And I got to do a lot of traveling to see a lot of different cultures, which I've been able to build on since. I felt it restrictive in terms of being able to do what I wanted to do and also to help people do what they wanted to do. You're a very small cog in a very, very big wheel in a corporate Whereas when you start working with smaller businesses or working for yourself, you can actually see the results of what you're doing happen quite quickly. You can actually make those things happen. And I think that's, that's the key to me. If you can get something started and actually see it all the way through, it doesn't always work. Uh, and that's one of the good and bad things about it. But you can actually do and make those things very quickly. You're not restricted by any politics or, or any restrictions on people saying that that's not the way the company is going at the moment. And I think that to me has been the thing that's really been a driver for what I've wanted to do uh, and how I've done things ever since um, those, those early days in, in corporate life. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, Luke and myself have also had several internships and I, I, I kind of relate to what you're saying. You're a small cog in a big wheel. When you want to impact or influence change in a bigger organization, it becomes quite difficult as compared to if you say running your own startup or working in a smaller firm where you're impacting change. And then seeing it through to the end, I completely get it. It's another experience in itself. Since we're going to be chatting about sales and marketing, specifically in the, in the tech commercial side of things, I want to start with a very simple question. So I have a product idea now. I've kind of built something. And now I want to build a business out of it, which means I want to commercialize it. What are the steps I would need to take as a student entrepreneur who is kind of limited with their funding opportunities, but is also very passionate about putting this and going to market with it? Everything is like building a house. It's getting the foundations right. Having a, a great technical product and being the person who invented that product is, is really obviously very appealing and it's, it's obviously very motivating to that person. But you have to take a step back and say, okay, I've got to take the emotion out of it now. I've got to decide 
what is it going to be used for? Who is going to buy it? And I know that sounds really, really obvious, but I've worked a lot within universities and with some very, very clever academics who've come up with some fantastic research and they've come up with great pieces of software. And they've said, this is great. I've built this thing. Now, now people are going to want to buy it. And I've gone, but what's it going to be used for? What is the benefit to the person who is going to take this product and use it? You almost have to start with the end in mind. And, and I look at it, there's probably two or three ways you can look at it. One is I, either it was an accident and you started building something and suddenly what you actually ended up building was completely different to what you started with. And I think the, 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 the classic one is post-it notes. You know, they were looking for a very, very hard adhesive, very strong withstanding adhesive. And they ended up developing an adhesive which was easy to rip off on a piece of paper and stick on a wall. They didn't start with that end in mind, but then they came to a product and they decided what they were going to do with it. And then they had to work around how that was then going to be marketed. It can be something that's academically driven where you've just got a real interest in something and you just go, great, I've got this great idea. I know I can do something. It's really fab. You know, I've built something. Right, now what do I want to do with it? Or you can start with the other entrepreneurial position, which is I've seen a gap in the marketplace and I believe I can develop a product or service to meet that need. So those are three relatively different areas and they all take a different view. If you're starting with a product which was an accident, then that's a case of going out and trying to find well, I realized it was an accident, therefore I realized there's a need for something like this. I've now got to go and try and find a, a the size of that market. What is the real need for it? Or develop the need. And that comes into an educational element. And that's, that's a bit I'll come on to in a moment. If it's something you started from the real basic, you know, out of a lab, you're really starting from ground zero. Because if you don't really know what the end user of that product is, you are going to have a very long journey. And it's not insurmountable. I've done it with a couple of businesses to take that and try and build a business and an idea and how then you go to market with it. And, and that's a very hard sell. The other one where you see an opportunity in the marketplace, that one is, is slightly easier, but it's still quite difficult because if it was easy, everyone would have found that same gap in the marketplace and they would have built a product to fill it in. But it all starts with understanding what the end user is going to use your product for and how it is going to benefit them. And once you've highlighted that and identified that, you can then start to build a business case around your particular product or service to see how it's going to benefit someone, that someone is willing to pay money to have that product or service given to them. And when you then start with that end in mind, you then start working your way back to identify, okay, to actually convince those people to use my product, I might need to do some trials. I might need to find some friendly customers. I might need to find some friendly consumers, whatever it happens to be, to take my product, use it, and give me feedback, really truthful feedback on whether it's doing what I expected it to do. That can be very simple or it can be very complex depending on the type of product you've got. Obviously, from a clinical trials perspective with things like, you know, the COVID virus thing, you've got a very complex route to go through to develop something that is going to show that it does exactly what it says on the tin. Other products can be slightly less complex, but no, no less difficult to get people to actually buy into it and feed into it. And a good example, I guess, is uh, when we developed the, the foot mirror for people with diabetes, what we wanted to do was to find out how easy it was to use, whether people would use it. You know, we're trying to change people's habits. I mean, I don't know about you, but I wasn't really in the habit of looking at the sole of my feet. You know, if I got up in the morning, I went to bed at night. And even people with diabetes who are aware that there could be issues with their feet wouldn't necessarily think, well, I must look at the sole of my feet in the morning and at night. So there was, a, there was an element of changing people's behavior. And that becomes more difficult. But what I did, I approached the local universities and usual funding groups, areas where you've got local business enterprises, 
which are very keen on helping people get funding together to do things which will help them develop their products. And they have different levels of funding. And they do have funding at levels that are for innovators who come in with an idea. Uh, and we even got funding to design the product in the first place because there was some design funding available as well. So I would encourage anybody who's looking at, at with an idea they want to try and take to market and they need to get some trials or some, some activity uh, started to, to, to start this process off. Look around your local enterprise networks and see what's available because you'll be surprised the funding that's there. Some of it's grant funding, some of it's match funding. You know, we were very lucky with our design. We got, I think, the, the total amount paid for by uh, the local enterprise. But when we did the research, it was a match funding 50-50. That's the decision you have to make. If you feel that's absolutely necessary to get people to buy into your, your concept or your idea, then you sometimes do have to put a little bit of funding up front. But there are, there are areas around it that will allow you to do that. And if you're a young entrepreneur, you're more likely to get that funding because people are more interested in, in funding people that are starting on the ladder than they are probably further down the road like myself in terms of with a few more years experience. So if you can get your product tested and tried, get it out to as many people as you can as possible and take the honest feedback. It's really, really difficult when you develop the product or an idea to hear people don't like it, but you've got to accept it because if they don't like it or they don't like something about it or they can't use it or they can't understand it, there's going to be many more people who are going to be the same and people won't buy it. So take it on the chin. Try and work in an agile way. Now, this is a phrase that's starting to be used an awful lot more. It started in the software world. People would do work in very distinct um, periods of time, what they call sprints. So they would work for a four-week period. They would work very hard doing a piece of software. They then test it. And if something wasn't right, they then go back. And they've only spent four weeks. So it's not like they've gone down an alley for six months. And do the same with your product. If you can be in a position where you can test parts of it or all of it over a very quick period, so you get feedback on it, Get that feedback as quickly as you can and change it. It's called failing fast, okay? It's an agile process. And the idea is if you can do that, one, you keep the momentum going. Two, you're actually responding to the feedback you're getting in the marketplace from the customers and you're doing something about it. But it will mean that you keep your momentum going and you keep your spirits high because there's nothing worse than being told your product isn't working properly or it doesn't do exactly what I want. That is one of the key things I do. And I, when I was working with De Montfort University, when I was look, we span out or looking to spin out a company which developed the uh, AI software for demand forecasting of queues in, in airports, I spent a lot of time first identifying what would be the best use of that particular technology. We, we focused on airports at the end, but I looked at train stations, I looked at bus stations, I looked at shopping centers, I looked at tube stations, I looked at every different type of opportunity of where potentially that software could be used. And then I spoke to the people involved and I spent time with the people in their environment to try and understand the value it could bring to them. And it became very quickly aware to me that the value within something like a train station or within a shopping centre wasn't there. It was going to be very difficult to get a return on investment for the product we were trying to develop. So we went back and looked and, and ended up with airports. And the reason we ended up with an airport was because there was a very defined business model that we were able to replicate and show that we could improve. And in this case, it was security people actually on the automatic metal detectors and the x-ray machines that we've all been through in airports. There is a time that it will take you to set up one of these machines. It takes up to six people, 15 minutes to set up a machine before you can start going through it. So we've all been in the airport where we're frustrated, where we can see all these security lines, all these x-ray machines open. 
and we're wondering why they're not being used. Well, if you don't have people at the airport, you're not going to be able to put them on these machines to make them work. So therefore, you've got to forecast in advance when the demand is going to come through and when people are going to use it. So there's a cost associated with that, the number of people on the line, the time it takes to set up. And that was one element we looked at. The other element we looked at as well was actually, well, what is the other benefit of people getting through security quickly? Because frankly, the security guys, it's neither here nor there whether people get through quickly or slowly from their perspective. They're just doing their job, you know, and quite rightly, they're making sure that people aren't carrying anything they shouldn't be carrying. However, the airports make most of their money through the retail that is actually at the airport as opposed to the flights that are taking off and landing. So in essence, you've probably noticed this, that most airports actually are a large shopping centre with airplanes taken off and landing. That's really what they happen to be. And they make most of their money through the retail establishments that are there. And it's what they call a turnover leasing. So a proportion of the rent paid by the retailer within an airport, for example, is paid to the airport based on how much they sell. So if they're not selling as much, the airport isn't getting as much. So I quickly came up with the idea of going, well, actually, if people get through quicker, they'll spend more money because dwell time within a retail shop or a shopping centre increases the amount of money you'll spend. We've all been there where you're at an airport, you're twiddling your thumbs, the flight's delayed, you go and buy something to eat, you go and have a look around at Duty Free. You end up spending probably more money than you would have done if you were rushing through the airport to get your flight. In fact, I can guarantee you, if your flight's just about to leave, you're not going to stop and decide to look at the magazines. So it was quickly identified that there was a benefit to the airport for getting people into the departure lounge much quicker. I think it was for every minute they were stood in the security queue, the airport was losing about 13 pence in profit. So whatever, whatever the measure happened to be, we put a business model together and we went to the, the airport and said, right, we've identified, we did a time and motion study at the airport. We spent time seeing how people went through, the length of time it took them to get through and track them through the airport and identified that if we could get this number of people through quicker at particular peak times of day, it would actually improve the profitability of the airport by X. We could also reduce down or increase the number of security staff necessary so that they were actually optimized for the number of people coming through. So the worst thing is to have too many people on because it's costing you money whether they're working or not. So if we could optimize the number of people coming through. So a very long story short, we were specifically focused on the needs of that end user and what it was and what it meant to them to be able to put a business case together. And that airport and other airports in that particular chain looked at it. We then got to trial. We put it through trial. It, uh, it, flew through the trial and we actually ended up then actually getting a five-year deal from those airports for the particular piece of software which allowed that particular company to, to to launch itself so very very important start with the end in mind start yeah. talking to the people who are going to be using your product get a business case that works for them and then focus on making sure you optimize that business case so often i come across entrepreneurs who are trying to create these wonderful solutions but they haven't really done the like the market research and realized what actually people want in their life what they're actually going to benefit from and when you put yourself in these customers shoes and you empathize with them what sort of questions are you asking to really get an insight into their needs their wants i think it's like any good sales process when you're trying to identify what are the pain points what, what are the things that keep that person or their team awake at night? What are the things that they're looking to try to do to improve what they're currently doing? A lot of it comes down to saving money. So looking at cost savings. But a lot of it is also about improving how they then perform in their roles to make what they're doing in their company better at what they do. The airport example is a good one because you've actually got the person who's had a security 
you and I probably would just necessarily think they're there for our safety to obviously make sure that people aren't coming through the airport with anything they shouldn't come through with. But actually, they're part of a whole chain, which is to help the value of that airport be maintained. It's to help the profitability of that airport increase so they can invest in better systems and services, which will help us as consumers going forward. It's to attract more retailers in there to help them to grow their retail side of things. So it's about trying to understand what it is that the issue that they're facing. And as I said, whether that's a revenue generation issue, whether it's a cost saving issue, whether it's about uh, just improving the um, the environment for 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 what where somebody is and what they're doing, you know, the diabetic foot mirror, for example, was all about improving quality of life and reducing down the number of amputations that that, that people have because of, of, of diabetes related foot ulcers. There's always an endpoint that you're looking at, and it's about identifying that. And that's why it's so difficult to to change people's behaviour. You know, in a business environment, it can be very black and white. It can be very numbers on a sheet, a spreadsheet, and, and you can actually come up with some very good return investment arguments. When you're dealing with consumer products, there's a much more of an emotional element associated with it as well, because you're dealing with people and how they react and how they change based on whether it's going to change their behavior on doing something. Take the recent situation. I bet if any of you had gone to any of your friends and parents you know, seven months ago and said, by the way, I'm not going to come and see you for the next four months. I'm, I'm only going to talk to you through a video conferencing link. I'm not going to be able to hug you or anything. And, and you're not going to be able to go to the shops. You're going to have to order everything online and you're going to have to order everything and get it delivered outside your house. People would have looked at you like you were stupid. Yeah, that's just not going to happen. A few months down the line, we now take that as normal life. It's sped up the, the, the concept that we can do things more online, more of a video conferencing, etc., and business-wise. You said everybody in your office was no longer going to be in the office. They were all going to work from home. Everyone was just going to have Zoom calls, whatever. People are thinking, that's just not going to work. You know, it can't work. You know, working from home doesn't work. You know, it's just not good for productivity. What's happened is we have the, the biggest social experiment, I think, that, that's happened in, in history. And it's shown that people can do it. Whether it's sustainable going forward is different, but we've completely changed behavior. Not only the people who were involved, like you and I, working from home and, and doing our business through a video screen all day, but we've actually changed the mentality of the management who are probably very, very fixed in their views that the only way they could do things was face-to-face uh, -face in a meeting room in the office. So that behavioral change has been accelerated. Getting that behavior change from people is the most difficult part. And that's why consumer products are more difficult to, to develop in a lot of ways because you really are having to communicate on a very emotional level with people, and especially if you're trying to get them to change their behavior. Wonderful. A lot of nuggets of wisdom there. When you were talking about it, I think one of the things that came up just when you said, you know, start with the end in mind. I think when it comes to like pitching, which is my next question, when you do your sales pitch, you obviously have to start with the end in mind. Who is the person that's actually going to hear my pitch and then who's going to make the decisions? My question is, selling is an art, it's, it's a form of storytelling. What is the best way to craft that story? And how do you provide that stellar pitch? In terms of sales being a story, I think this is where the fallacy comes in that all salespeople just talk. And all we do is turn up with a pitch deck and we bore people to death with a PowerPoint. The key element of any selling is about understanding your customer, understanding who they are and what they want. And the only way to do that is two broad ways. One, through research. So you find out everything you can about the company, everything you can about the market that they're in, 
the issues that face that market, the competitors that are in that market, the pressures they're under. And then you start talking to the individual who you're looking to actually convince or to understand whether they're interested in your product or not. You start asking them questions. It's all about understanding. It's all about getting down to the base level of trying to find out who is involved in the process. So you do your research on the company first. That's just paramount. If you don't do that, then, then you're, you're doomed to failure. But when you go in and you start talking to the company, you need to know who the key people are in the organization that not only are going to be the users of your product, but who are the influencers and who are the people who are the gatekeepers and who are the people who are, who are actually going to sign it off. Because if you don't understand who those people are, you and I can have a great conversation. You think it's a fantastic product. You want to buy it tomorrow. But you've got no idea whether the budget's available. You have no idea whether it fits with the strategic intent of the business. You have no idea whether your manager's going to sign it off or whether it's something that the business actually got to invest in anyway. But you might be completely convinced. And I could walk away from that meeting selling to you going, wow, great. Varun's on board with this. I've got that one key sale. Put it in my pipeline. Bingo. I'll tell my manager I'm going to hit my targets this quarter. And what it ends up being is a pipe dream. Pipeline turns into a pipe dream because... What you've done is you've identified one person in the organization who likes your product. And actually, if you're a good salesperson, you should be able to do that. However, what you should really be doing is identifying the needs of that business and how important it is for the people in that business to want your product and need your product. What are the pain points? What happens if they don't buy your product? Do they just carry on as business as usual? If they don't buy it, is it just going to make no difference to them at all? And if it is, then you're wasting your time or you haven't done a good enough job of finding out the issues that they're really facing. That's the key to it from a B2B perspective. You've almost got to be the person that, that's telling them something about their market and their industry that they don't know. You know that's, that's where it gets to a lot of, a lot of good selling, especially on a consultative sale perspective. You've almost got to be in there being the thought leader. You are the experts in that market. You're, the expert. you're, you're telling them things that are happening in the marketplace they need to be aware of. You're asking questions that are identifying that they maybe have weaknesses or areas they're not actually looking at or not actually focusing on. You're there identifying where competitors are actually moving in a different way and actually doing more quickly. You're becoming the, the, the person they rely on as not just the salesperson, but actually the partner who's helping them develop their business. And when you get to that stage, you're in a much easier position then to start convincing people of whether they should or shouldn't be listening to you in the first place. And then secondly, about whether they're interested in understanding what your product and service does. So when you get to that point, you will then start digging within the organization of what it is that, that really hurts. And you keep asking the question, why? So this, this, and this, you know, does this happen in your business? Yeah, why is that? Well, well, this happened. Why does that happen? Well, this happened, but why? And if you keep digging down, you'll eventually find, you know, the reason that the bottom line is why that happens. Well, because if it doesn't happen, this is going to happen, right? that's your key selling point that's the area that's the pain point you're trying to get to and it's about trying to identify that specifically selling is about a series of mini closes just getting in the door to talk to somebody about your product is a close you've got an action you've got you closed it great working through that person to get information back from them to take them to the next level that's a close think of it as many steps on the way if you just look at it as the end point where you just sign on the dotted line whatever you're giving yourself something that's too big to eat all at once. You've got to break it down into bite-sized chunks and understand where you are on that journey and know what you need to do to make that journey successful. And the easiest way to do it is thinking of it as a step of mini closing. So that's more in a B2B world. In a B2C world, it's very much working on, you've really got to identify a specific niche or need for a particular product or service. And you've got to understand how that fits emotionally 
as well as physically with the person who's, who's actually buying it. Uh, I mean, if you think of something going back a number of years now with even Unilever, it was the Ma Magnum ice cream. It was, a, it was a revolution at the time. It was actually ice cream that was wrapped in chocolate. And you think, yes, so what? That in itself was a novelty to actually have proper chocolate around an ice cream and the way that was set up because obviously the two systems don't go together. You've got heated chocolate and cold ice cream. But they built on it being a luxury. They built on it being something that you aspire to. If you remember the ads, it's some lady biting off and you get the crunch of the chocolate and it breaking off. And it was usually in an exotic location. It was all about the indulgence. It was all about appealing to that moment on your own to have that time where you're allowed to spend a little bit more on ice cream, which is basically what it was, you know, with chocolate on it. You're allowed to have that indulgence and it's all about it. And you're trying to keep it quiet, but the noise of the ice cream, the, the chocolate breaking was, was going to be found out, if you will. But it was appealing to that sense that it was something special. And that's how a lot of the consumer advertising works. It's about identifying what it is that's actually emotionally attaching you to that particular product or service that will make you want to go and buy it or make you want to use it. It could be something even as hard and fast as kills 99% of all germs, you know, the whole domestic as it used to be. Playing on the emotions, if you don't use domestic, you've not got a clean house. And that's how a lot of people do it. sort of very black. If you don't use this, well, you're not a good parent. If you're not, you're not using this, you're not a good mother. You know, if you're not using this, you're not a good cook. You know, it's trying to work on different things of saying, by using this, you're showing that you're actually able to impress your friends or you've got some way of making sure your family are eating better than the other family. So you're, you're very much on an emotional level and that's very difficult to achieve, especially on a broadcast level. I think that's where the, the social media aspect is much more powerful now with more videos that are used. And videos are very powerful because you can actually show things acting and working uh, in a sort of realistic uh, way with people that look like you and me as opposed to you know models that are set up on a sort of film set yeah. to make it look all fun dabby dozy this is about you know just then maybe going to someone's house in real life and it's bringing that sense of reality to it which i think is now more coming to play playing on the emotional elements but but also proving that it's real life these are real people using those products it's not just some film star that's the side which, which will appeal to a lot of people as well nice i like how the approaches are so different in a b2b versus a b2c my next question is pertaining more towards a b2c side in that respect you know you're saying that you need to appeal to a larger audience a customer base and you said videography is one more my question is do you think sales and marketing or advertising is it more persuasion or is it more manipulation <laughs> It depends how you look at it, I guess. If you, if, do you feel manipulated by, by advertising or do you feel persuaded? It, it's a big debate because uh, sometimes um, I feel like I have control and then other times um, I don't. So I guess the way I would define it is if, for example, I don't have control and I'm being forced to do it, then I'm being completely manipulated. But if I'm, there's a, there's a nice argument to it and I'm rationally choosing on my own, or at least that I think I am, then it's more of a persuasion. But of course, that's again, debatable. And I think that's, that's the, the difficulty. There's no clear answer to that one. You ask hundred different people and they'll come back in a hundred different ways. I think most people would say, they would never feel like they've ever been manipulated to do anything. They would like to feel they've been persuaded based on a very good rational argument, you know, blah, blah, blah. No one ever wants to feel they've been manipulated. In some ways, we're all being manipulated, you know, to do certain things. 
I guess people would never have thought of going having breakfast in McDonald's and saw, saw McDonald's started serving breakfast and making out that it was the best start of the day that you could get. I don't feel pressured that if I don't have a McDonald's breakfast that there's something wrong with me, but some people might feel it's, it's a nice way to do it because they weren't having breakfast before. So actually you can say it's been a positive if I actually stopped there to have breakfast when normally they'd have just picked up a bar or something and gone into work. The manipulation versus persuasion argument can be quite difficult to nail down, but it comes back to the emotional tie that someone's got with a particular product or service. That's the other thing to it. Is somebody selling funeral care for 20 years down the line, is that a manipulation or persuasion? It's not something I really feel like I want to go and buy, but it's a service I'm going to need at some point. It's a definitive service and no one can say I've been manipulated in, in having to go through it. Am I being persuaded to go to that that supplier or that supplier? I must admit, I, I've not looked at that market. I'm, I'm just using this example. Yeah. Yeah, car buying, I think, is a great one. And I think the, the advertising standards got involved many years ago where car buying was being shown as, as just how fast a car could go and, and how much it raced around a track. Whoa, whoa, and this isn't how, this is what people aren't supposed to be doing with cars, unless they're all racing drivers, which they're not. But you have to appeal to different sets of people. Very famous ads going back many, many years now. And I think it's been held up as one of the, you know, the key ads in advertising. And it was an ad for the Volkswagen Beetle. And you may or may not have heard about this, but it was an American ad. It was very, very simple. It had a, a complete whiteout snowdrift area. It was somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, I think, in the States. And it came across in advertising. Do any of you ever think how the man who drives a snowplow gets to the snowplow? And they showed a Volkswagen Beetle driving up to the snowplow. And that's all it said. And then it had the guy driving off in his, in his snowplow. And the, the power of that, because at the time it was all big, heavy American rear-wheel drive cars, this was a very light, you know, European front-wheel drive car that was, that was breaking the mould in that sense in terms of advertising. But it was, it was a very, very powerful piece of advertising. But it wasn't talking about how fast it went. It wasn't talking about, you know, all the technology in it. If you've ever been to Volkswagen Beetle, the old-style ones, there was very little technology in them. But it was appealing to the sense to say, this is a good, reliable car. And Ford played on that a few years later where they had somebody who was a doctor or a midwife or somebody whose, whose wife was pregnant going to the hospital and getting in the middle of the night, starting the car and it started first time and the, the windscreen cleared immediately because it had the heated windscreen. Yeah. It wasn't saying, unless you buy this car, you're going to be a bad parent or a bad husband to your wife because she won't be able to get to the hospital at two o'clock in the morning when it's mm. frozen. Mm. But it was it was showing a different side of that particular product. So there was a persuasion element going, well, actually, I hadn't thought about that before because I do get really annoyed when I've got to get up in the morning and scrape my window, but I didn't realize that surface was there. There's a thousand other things on the car you could be focusing on. It could be the stereo, it could be the wheels. It could, yeah. But they focus on different things because they understand, through research again, understanding the end user, what are the pain points? And I bet if you talk to 100 different motorists on a, on a cold morning and say, what is the biggest problem when you get up and go to work in the morning? clearing this windscreen of ice okay well that's something for me to focus on i'll focus on that now am i persuading yeah. you or am i manipulating you that's the question that's an interesting answer i guess it's it's for all of us to ponder on it but i'm i'm interested to hear everyone's thoughts on this because this is this is like kind of like a like a gray area there's a lot of uh, debate around it and i actually wrote an entire essay not too long ago for my marketing uh, module on this very topic so i was very interested to know what a practitioner actually thinks of it but i guess yeah but if we say that you know persuasion is a little well, relatively more ethical than manipulation what are top three techniques that you can use as a sales or a marketing person in terms of persuasion uh, again it's starting with starting with the end in mind that, that's all it comes back down to i mean uh, i i don't think you could put any simpler than that 
if you don't understand what is going to change the thoughts or opinion of the person that you're trying to influence or sell your product to, then you're never ever going to be able to connect with them on an emotional level or even on a, on a practical level. You are not going to be able to sell something to somebody unless they've got an idea that it's a need mm. they either have or a want that they should have. It, it does start with the end in mind. The, the, other, the other extreme is that you get a, you know, these very, very expensive watches. You know, it, let's be frank, they all tell the time. You know, whether it be a Hubler, whether it be a, a Rolex or a Tag, they all tell the time. They can tell it in nicer, different ways, whatever, they all tell the time. So what is it that's actually convincing you to buy one of those as opposed to just going and buying yourself a watch for 20 quid? Well, actually, then it's about the image. It's about you feeling good wearing it. It's maybe a sense of you've succeeded because you've got the money to be able to afford it. Actually, I can now afford different types of watch to go with different type of outfits I'm wearing. Therefore, it's a fashion accessory because it's actually helping me you know, in, in terms of how I look. So the, the whole point is, Nobody would have realized that until they'd spoken to end users and said, what is it you really want out of this thing? And I think Swatch was one of the first ones that touched on for this years ago. I think it's classed as saving the, the Swiss watch industry because they, they tuned into the fact that people didn't just want one watch. They wanted a number of watches that actually fitted their personality and their lifestyle. And then it became you could change the, the, the cover, you know, the front or the strap. And, and suddenly that opened up a whole new market to say, rather than just telling the time, it became a fashion accessory. So, you know, if you can actually identify that that's the need of your end user, who would have thought you could be innovative with a watch? You know, uh, apart from adding, you know, all the time in 14 different countries and, you know, the date <laughs> and the stopwatch and everything yeah. else. I mean, how many people use a stopwatch on their normal watch anyway? But you go through all, all those different things. And suddenly you identify that there are actually people who would be willing to pay and pay a premium for having that capability. So you've identified that end need. So a lot of it just, it does come through research. It does come through understanding and actually knowing what people want. And when you've done that, you're then able to then come back and identify what you need to do to make your product or your service fit that particular need in the marketplace. Great. So start with the end in mind. I think, I think that's, that's what I'm going to get away from this, this entire discussion, David, hundred percent. If I may ask this, I think it's one of our few last questions. I mean, you've worked in this industry for a very long time and I'm sure you've advised several business, several startups. What are some of the common mistakes, maybe a top three mistakes that startups or, you know, new founders or just business professionals make when selling? It's going out there assuming that just because they built it, it will sell. I would say that is the absolute number one issue I've come across, especially working from universities as well. But anybody, as we started off very early in the conversation saying, you've spent time and effort, blood and tears, trying to build this product, develop this product, whatever it happens to be. And you think it's the best thing that's going, otherwise you wouldn't have built it. You know, you're absolutely convinced. And of course, you're also surrounded by everybody who tells you it's brilliant. So your family and your friends, because they don't want to harm your, you know, your feelings, or because you've convinced them that it's the best thing going, because you've wanted to convince them that it's the best thing going, why you wouldn't have spent all your time and money on it. They're all telling you it's great. So the first thing is, you've got to be very realistic. Just because you built it, it doesn't mean people will buy it. Two, do not just assume that what your friends and family tell you is what everyone else will think. Okay? They are going to tell you what they, what they, what you want to hear, basically, because they've seen you sweating and killing yourself somewhere trying to build this thing and doing everything you can. 
And, and the third one is get out and start asking people who don't know you and don't, don't have anything to do with you. One, just give it to them uh, and ask them, you know, especially if it's a physical product they've got to use. Say, okay, here it is. Here's the instructions. What is it? I, I'm not going to tell you. I just want you to just take this instruction and see what you can do with it. And the acid test is usually if it's a physical product, is give it to your grandmother. If she can use it, using the instructions you've got, do you know what? And that's no disrespect to grandmothers. What I'm saying is it's saying if it can, if it can accommodate the age range, if they can do, use it with the instructions you've given them, do you know what? It'll succeed everywhere. And this is no respect to grandmothers. So in addition to that, always work on the lowest common denominator, whoever you're talking to, whoever you're dealing with, because work on the basis that somebody might not be able to see, you know, if they're blind, they may not have the same sense of touch that you've got, whatever it happens to be, work on something that you know is, is potentially going to be a barrier for someone to use it when it shouldn't be. And if you can identify those, then you're in a much stronger position to actually appeal to a wider group of people than you probably would have done otherwise. Otherwise, you start off restricting your target audience from day one and getting criticism from day one, which means that, you know, as we all look at reviews online, which means it will start getting negativity coming through. And no matter how good it is, you've now got an additional hurdle to get over, not just to get your new product out there, but you've got the negativity that people have put against it to try and get past as well. I can definitely resonate with what you said about when you put so much work into something and just thinking, because you've done all that, it's just going to fly off and everyone's going to want to buy it. It brings back lots of memories. So we always end up with some quick fire questions. So are you ready? Don't overthink them. Uh, just whatever comes straight to mind. Okay. So what's your favourite book? Oh, uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And your favourite podcast? I was going to say Peter Crouch. <laughs> nice. Yes, I love that. Favourite song? Nothing compares to you. What's your favourite movie? Uh, the Shawshank Redemption. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Get out of bed. <laughs> and what's the last thing you do uh, before you go to sleep? Get into bed. <laughs> <laughs> We've never had this answer. I like yeah, we, we haven't had it before. What's the, uh, what's the one word that describes you and why? Energetic. I'm always on the move, always doing something. I'm very, I find it very difficult to sit down and do, do nothing. And I'm always being told to by my family. And what are your top three tips to a young entrepreneur just starting out? Be brave. Don't listen to people who are, who are negative about what you're trying to do or trying to achieve because people always try and put somebody down if they didn't think of something themselves. And I would say network. Try and get to know as many people as you can and, and stay in touch with them, especially when you're young. I was very unfortunate in some ways when I was in Unilever. A lot of, I was in touch with some really, really good people, but there was no social media or networking that was available you've got now. There was no LinkedIn. There was no sort of social media. The only thing you had was a telephone number. And it was usually a landline. It, it didn't even have email addresses. So I lost contact with a lot of very, very good people over the years. So if you can keep in contact with those people, do so because you have no idea how in 5, 10, 15 years' time, they might be a really, really good contact to have and might be someone who could really introduce you to someone who could really help you. All right. Uh, my last question, just out of personal curiosity, would you recommend going down the corporate route for someone who's very passionate about entrepreneurship? I would say yes. Uh, and the reason I would say yes is because it'll make you realize what you don't want to do. But in all, in all seriousness, what it will do, it will introduce you to some very, very good, very bright, very clever people, some very good structures, some very good mechanisms and, and systems to do things and give you an opportunity to identify 
how people do things on a very large scale. And if you do the right corporate entry, I was very lucky. I was on the graduate scheme with Unilever. So I was actually able to go through all the different departments. So I got a feel of those different areas. And that gave me a very good rounding in terms of understanding the total business concept. And I think if you can do that, it will help, but it's not for everybody. Wow, David, thank you so much for that podcast. It was absolutely awesome. We'll be sure to use that advice, I'm sure. <laughs> thank you very much, guys. It's been really enjoyable. If, if someone needs to reach you, uh, what, what can they do? Uh, you can email me, david at tolp, that's T-O-L-P dot co dot U-K. That's the easiest place to get me. Any interesting projects coming up? Yes, I'm actually working with probably one of the first online B2B commerce sites called Innovo Network. And that's bringing together businesses to help them increase sales internationally and decrease their supply chain costs. Oh, wow. uh, so yeah, so that's, that's, that's something I'm working on at the moment. And I think that's going to be very, very big in the next few months. Nice, cool. nice. Uh, David, I wish you all the best. And thank you so much for being on The Human Entrepreneur. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, drop a review wherever you're listening to this. And for weekly content, subscribe to our podcast channel. And for more updates, check our social media channels attached in the show notes below. Thank you very much.